this is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the Hi, podcast listeners. Welcome again to the podcast. It's so good to have you with us. I hope wherever you are on the planet, you're finding time to get wet every once in a while. It's my favourite time of year here in Cowes. The town is alive and kicking and this year's racing seems to very much be in full swing. Every time I look out of my window, the cannons at the Royal Yacht Squadron are firing. There's another race starting. And this week, the Solent has been glistening with a lot of wood and white trousers. It's classic week. Love the classics. It's so good to see. Well, no wooden boats for me. I've mostly been racing offshore double-handed with British offshore star Henry Bombay. We're getting there, making progress towards being race ready for the Fastnet race later this summer. If you want to see how we've been getting on, head to our YouTube channel, Shirley Robertson's Sailing Podcast on YouTube. We've just published part three of our mini series, beautifully filmed and edited by Tim, of course. And Henry and I, well, we're doing our best to film our way through the offshore segments. Take a look and let me know what you think, or if you want to know more about the joys of double-handed sailing, then please do get in touch. Just quickly before we get going, thanks to everyone who reached out about last month's pod, the one and only Brad Butterworth. Many of you thought it was the best yet. We do all love a guest who's not afraid to voice an opinion. So thanks again, Brad, for, well, for just being you. It was well received. Also, a quickly, a massive thanks to all of you who contributed and left lovely messages on buymeacoffee.com. It makes a difference. So a big heartfelt thanks to all of you for your support. We've said it before, but we're really keen to keep these pods ad-free. So we'll run with it a little while longer. If you enjoy listening to this pod and you want to support us, then it's all very simple. Go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's super quick, super easy, and it's greatly appreciated. And it keeps your listening free of any annoying adverts. We're lucky in our sport that we have some very compelling communicators. Sailors who not only excel at their craft, but have a way of bringing their experiences to life, drawing in the audience, sharing the reality of life on a race boat. New Zealander Mike Sanderson is one of those characters. You'll hear, you could listen to him forever. It's hard to pin down, but very quickly, you'll hear just how much he loves our sport and how much he loves talking about it. But he's also a man you want to front your big boat program, a strong leader, a winning skipper of the Volvo Ocean Race, and now helming one of sailing's biggest commercial concerns, a CEO of Doyle Sales. We spoke to Mike, Moose, as the sailing world knows him, on his rather lovely motorboat, the day before we left Auckland to fly home after the Kiwi's emphatic win of the 36th America's Cup. So naturally, Mike kicks off by savouring his nation's victory. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Mike Sanderson.
I just loved boats and I still love boats and people still think I'm strange. All walks of life seem to come out to watch America's Cup racing in New Zealand. My first time around the world was, it was honestly, it was like reading a book about the round the world race. Mike Sanderson, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you on the pod and, and thanks for making the time. No, thank you very much. Lovely to be here and um, yeah, it feels like we're just coming up for, for air um, after the previous weeks and months of, of America's Cup World. So, no, lovely to be here. Yeah, as you say, we're here in Auckland, mm -hmm. your home. A few days after the 36th America's Cup has finished, there's, there's sort of a post-America's Cup depression, isn't there, in Auckland now. Emirates Team New Zealand, of course, lifted the trophy. And, I mean, a real unforgettable moment for New Zealand. More people watched at home on the television than for a royal wedding. I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, the Haraki Gulf also filled with supporter boats. I mean, what did you make of it all, Mike? Oh, I mean, it was an unbelievable occasion. And it was, it was amazing when I was earlier in the year, I was talking to many of the super yacht owners who I was lucky enough to still be in contact with and sailing with, et cetera. And they were saying, oh, it's a shame it's not going to be the spectacle that it was. And I said, whoa, you wait. You know, we saw it with Super Rugby here in New Zealand. As, you know, it was slowly dwindling numbers. Then as soon as we came out of COVID, the stadiums were all packed, you know. And so I, I had a funny feeling that the America's Cup turnout was going to be huge here. I mean, New Zealand's famous for every person in a kayak or an inflatable boat or anything getting out there and getting amongst it. And, yeah, I'm not sure if it's a depression, which we're seeing here in Auckland, of it being over or a hangover, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I think, um, I think it was a pretty good party on Wednesday night. And I think the country needed it and the world probably needed it a little bit and what better excuse you know because let's be honest it was it was a fantastic match and you know to have gone for all um for all three all for all yeah to go on for all was was amazing you know and when we all kind of were expecting it to go one way or the other and so for them to be for all after after those first couple of days was just unreal so now nah, very cool yeah it was good fun we spoke to Team New Zealand coach Ray Davies on the pod before the match and he talked of how aware the team is of all the guys that came before. You know, how the jersey in a way is just on loan. You know, you wore the black jersey mm -hmm. in the successful defence of 2000. I mean, can you explain what it means and what it meant to the guys of 2021? Yeah, I think it's a very, you know, it's a, it's part of the sporting mantra which seems to have been um, spoken about a lot more in recent times in, in New Zealand sport and I'm sure around the world as well. And you hear the All Blacks to speak about it, you hear the Silver Ferns speak about it, you, you know, you hear the Black Sticks and, and all the national teams speak about it more and more and... and you know how when it's your turn to to wear the national jersey um that you know you 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 try and make it better and try and well certainly not detract from it but try and you know be part of that history and you know i think this team new zealand team has 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 you know done such a, an amazing job 
of you know um, representing the country in what's been a you know a unbelievably difficult now fifteen months or whatever it is. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so it's you know I think um, you know they treated very carefully through lockdown and they you know they continued to train but they were very you know did it very tastefully and they were very conscious of social distance etc cetera, etc cetera. so now i think you know that it's it's been a, a very cool thing for us to have had you know team new zealand operating in these tricky times having team new zealand you know flying the flag and then you know having these wonderful teams then show up and really you know doing it pretty tough to get here all doing their two weeks in quarantine and you know the ups and downs of the country going into lockdown even while they were here which you know never a bad word was spoken about that which um you know they all just got it and they all i think you know we all should be so proud of you know as sailors um and supporters of sailing of how well those teams represented our sport i just thought it was outstanding i think we all felt quite privileged to be here, to be visitors in your country. It was pretty special. Um, we're going to come back, Mike, to your own cup experiences and, of course, a whole lot more. But let's first wind the clock back a bit. I mean, how did you get the, the sailing bug and what are your memories of growing up involved in the sport in New Zealand? It was, I mean, you know, I was... Um, you know, I'm from a couple of hours north of Auckland. I'm... I'm I'm from a medical-based family. My grandfather and my father and my mother and 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 you know my my family are very medically based and we were very busy when I was a kid. So um, we didn't have a whole lot of time. You know, they didn't have a whole lot of time to invest to take my sailing to what I would now call a Grand Prix level. And one of the things which I love watching about the sailors of today is just how unbelievably good they are at 10 11 12 you know you go and watch an optimist race now and i mean they are so far in front of where certainly we all were at that age you know and we were you know thrashing around and still dragging about at the beach and sailing to you know to sandbanks to have picnics and things and yes, we were racing, but you know we weren't nailing the shifts and 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 just the big picture which they seem to have got now. So, I my sailing was you know for my childhood, I certainly had the passion for it. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a naturally gifted sailor in, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I love boats. In fact, you know, for my first eight years of my life you know seven years of my life my dream for Christmas day and my birthday would have been a, a tin dinghy with an outboard that's what I wanted you know and I was probably disappointed when my optimist turned up if I'm being brutally honest so you know I just loved boats and I still love boats and people still think I'm strange how I can come back from you know when I come back from a Volvo leg and then Emma and I would go around the boat and um you know, so I just love boating and that led me, you know, I, in my day, you know, there really wasn't professional sailing when I was a kid growing up. And of course, we, 
I was at secondary school when New Zealand um, entered the Fremantle America's Cup in 87. And, you know, this was that was the first time that this country sort of went crazy. Uh, it's the first time, to be honest, most of us had. We'd all watched the 83 America's Cup. Um, and obviously I was really young then, but the but the 87 New Zealand went crazy. And um, and so that's between that and the 89 you know, the 89-90 Whitbread race with Steinlager 2 and Fisher and Paykel. Between Fremantle and Blake's Whitbread win were the two things which really made me decide that's that's for me, that's my future. What kind of, of child were you? I mean, were you always looking out the window from the classroom? You'd see how windy it was. Yeah, I mean, I'm for sure, I, I, I'm for sure I'm, I was that kid that was that was keen to go and do something outdoors. As I said, I, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't until my teens, you know, that passionate about the racing aspect of it. And even now, you know, my racing side of it, um, I've, you know, I haven't ever gone down a one design path. I, I love, mate, my, honestly, my, Motivation is trying to make boats go faster than than other people, and and I love the the science of it. I love, you know, the the fascination of sails and masts and keels and and you know the the hydro and aero side of it. So um, I'm not a good enough sailor to go and win a race in a laser or something. I, my laser needs a taller rig and a and a more efficient mainsail and better appendages, and then I can smash it, you know. So um, yeah, I, I you know I love that whole boat balance and 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 making boats go fast. And so that's I was probably daydreaming out the window on how I could make my boat go faster. Um, rather than how I was going to win the pin and and, and cross the fleet. <laughs> the outboard engine. That's yeah, really <laughs> well, the outboard would have been a good start, yeah. Uh, as a, a parent of teenagers, I'm thoroughly disapproving that you left school early <laughs> yeah. to become an apprentice sailmaker. I mean, what did your parents think and, and what drove you to do that? It, it's a pretty radical step. Yeah, it was. And as I said, I'm, I was from a very highly educated family. And I had made uh, the final group to be to be uh, that head boy was going to be selected from from one of Auckland's um, most elite private schools, which my parents had put me through. And yeah, I left a, a year before my final year um, because I got an apprenticeship offer at at North Sales. So, um, but I, I, you know, I'd made up my mind that at that stage, all my heroes were sailmakers who, you, you know, if you only got to look through, you know, the New Zealand challenges of 87 and, and uh, you, you know, 92 and 95 and even the, the boys who are still out on the TP52 circuit, the Kiwi trimmers are, are all sailmakers, you know, um, and even... Brad Butterworth and Grant Dalton and Kevin Shoebridge and Tony Ray and um, you know all these guys did their time sailmaking. So it was a very you know at that time being in the trade was a ticket to to um, you know into the professional world. So yeah, I I did leave early and um, and but obviously in, you know ne have never looked back because. Uh, 
in saying that, the, the the skills and the life skills and the um and the you know respect and things that I learned from that schooling and the network have have done me very well, and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't change any of it now, even in hindsight. I remember on Paul Kayard's podcast, it, 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 a similar story. You know, quite early on, he's working in a sail loft. And uh, obviously, doing your apprenticeship, you know, he's cutting patches, patch after patch. Yeah, yeah. And he suddenly sort of realised, right, I'm not sure this is quite what I expected. No, no, exactly. And um, no, well, you do have to do the hard yards, but it's it's interesting, you know. I still, you know, just learning to work and learning, to, you know, how that things don't come easily you know, is, is, you know, it's an interesting time in your life, isn't it? You know, and I, yeah, a great example is Richard Meacham over at, at Team New Zealand, you know, and he, when I did my first wet bread race in a, in whatever that was, 93, 94, he was the storeman. <laughs> he was running the store at Lydgaard Sales here in Ellerslie. And and he called me Mr. Sanderson, and even though I was only four years older than him or whatever I was, and 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 here he was, and he's the same. It was this—he's basically the same kid that he is now. But he, he never, from that day to this day, does anyone work any harder than than Dick does. And he's just put his head down. And I remember the first time I bought bought him to a boat, and. Um, he, I took him out sailing to fit some sails, and we, and um, we pulled him up the mast. He, this is a guy that's gone on to be an, an America's Cup bowman. He got his foot jammed between the mast and the and the D two, and so, so suddenly we're bouncing him up, and boom, he stops dead because Dick's got his foot jammed in the ring. I, I'm sure he hasn't made that mistake again, but I, that's going to haunt him forever. He, and, and now we've brought it up on your podcast, so the world's going to get to hear Dick's foot jam story. But um, yeah, I mean, an, a, an amazing example, you know, and I'm so super proud, you know, of my time with him when we were younger, especially, and watching, you know, being such a key member of what they did over there at Team New Zealand. It's, it's very cool. It's interesting you bring him up. I mean, if, if any of our listeners watch The Rescue of American Magic, yeah. <laughs> he's the kind of really skinny guy with the grey hair who just seemed to arrive. Without a shirt. Yeah, no shirt on and just <laughs> took over the whole operation. Yeah. He's, he's that kind of guy. Absolutely, yeah. you know, and he he was with them. Uh, towing. He was still with them at 10.30 at night sitting on the boat without his shirt on as they towed it as they towed it back in and and I have no doubt was instrumental in with Dolts and Shube and in Team New Zealand building the part you know to go to go back in um in in the American Magic Boat you know that's just what he's about um so no very very special there's a lot of real legends Kiwi legends from that era and Mike I've heard you talk about NZ the AC Challenge in 87 that you mentioned, where New Zealand made the Challenger final. And I've heard you mention that it was such a game changer for the sport here in New Zealand. I mean, what did you mean by that? And and how did it affect Mike Sanderson? Well, I mean, it was, I mean, it probably affected me a lot because that's the year I left. The year after that, I left school. And, 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 went, and yeah, at the end of 88 is when I, is when I left. 
school and 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 so I basically lived every moment of that with them um I was boarding at school and so I you know I got to watch every race and you know I, I can still to this day although uh, you know it might take a little bit of time but rattle off the crew and I st- and I uh, you know I was it it was the first I mean it was almost our first taste in New Zealand of professional sport full stop. At that stage, of course, the All Blacks were still amateurs. And, um, yeah, obviously we had, you know, a long history in motor racing and things, but, you know, we didn't sort of people, you know, who sailed or played rugby or things, you know, weren't able to do it uh, competitively for a living. So it was, it was a deal. The guys still joke they're $150 a week or whatever they were on. It was only, can't really say they were making a living, but, um, you know, well, I think it certainly in this country, it was, you know, we got to see people, you know, training in the gym to go sailing and we got to see, you know, sales being made specifically for an event. And it, it just changed so many things, you know, before that, yes, we'd had successful Admirals Cup teams and Kenwood Cup teams and and, and Olympians, etc. But, you know, KZ7 and Fremantle was very much, you know, the time when the rest of New Zealand, I guess, witnessed professional sailing. And, um, and you know, the I mean, the the country went nuts for it and hasn't recovered since, really. Um, you know, or uh, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, I mean, it, all walks of life seem to come out to watch America's Cup racing in New Zealand. Like, and we don't really see that when we're traveling the world. It seems to be a sort of certain type of person that goes and watches sailing or a certain type of person that goes and watches rugby, etc. Uh, those uh, always cracks me up for a Volvo Ocean Race start or a or an America's Cup event in New Zealand. It's just like whoom, the whole country shows up in whatever floats, and off they go, <laughs> risking life and limb. You know, so um, so yeah, the five knots in the harbour made a big difference. I think it was a lot less life threatening to be out there this time than it ever has been before, because normally it's just chaos. You know, <laughs> uh, I've done a few Volvo finishes here. <laughs> You, you feel pretty lucky to get back to the dock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. What were you doing, Mike, at that time to, to get noticed in the sailing world? Yeah, I was I was really lucky and um, I was working hard in the sail loft. Um, I was lucky um, to have won um, a New Zealand class, the Elliot 5.9, which basically is, was the Elliot 6 boat, which went on to be the, the women's match racing boat um, in London. And um, we had, I had just won the Elliot 5.9 Nationals in New Zealand. And then I got asked to sail on a 40-footer in a coastal race, um, which was, as it turned out, was navigated by Murray Ross, who was a famous New Zealand designer um and and a very competitive international sailor and he had navigated grant dalton's um fisher and pikel in the 89 90 race <clears throat> and anyway we did this coastal race and he uh, murray asked me to steer and four hours later i'm still steering his boat and then we got to russell which is in the bar of islands which is where the race finishes and and um you know he said to me you know, a few beers later, he said to me, you know, I, I want you to apply um, 
for adults for the Whitbread race. And I kind of just assumed it was the beer and the rum talking, as the case might be, and didn't do anything about it. I, I'd had these huge dreams of doing the race, and basically everything I'd done to date was about doing the Whitbread race. Um, but I thought I was one more away. I was only 20 years old at that stage, and now uh, 21. And so I thought I was one more cycle away on my path. Anyway, sure enough, three weeks later, Murray rang me up and said, listen, I've just spoken to Dalton and he hasn't heard from you. And I was like, oh, well, that's because I haven't contacted him. He said, well, get on with it. Okay, so there I was. I've still actually got the letter. My mum's good at keeping stuff. And, you know, dear Mr. Dalton, my name is Mike Sanderson. I sail with Murray Ross on his boat, Satellite Spy, and I would love to do the Whitbread race with you, you know. And anyway, so in those days, you know, um, it was you, basically the public applied to to because it, it was New Zealand endeavour and it was it was a Kiwi campaign, you know, with um, government company sponsors, you know, lotteries and and you know international brands and things. We were literally queued up outside the Royal Yacht Squadron, and anyone could apply. So I'm standing in the queue there and then I come through and meet, I can still remember as if it was yesterday, which is a bit embarrassing, but you know, I can still remember Kevin Shoebridge and, and Glenn Sowry and, and Murray Ross and Grant, who I did my interview with. And um, yeah, two weeks later, I get this lovely letter saying I've been accepted. So that was just, I mean, for me, that's a game changer. I'll be forever thankful for the guy who, you know, got me on Murray Ross's boat and for Murray for giving me the chance. As it turned out, Murray didn't end up doing the race with us. Mike Quilter ended up navigating New Zealand Endeavour. Um, but, you know, I've kept in touch with them all. And it, what was unbelievable about that campaign was, <clears throat> you know, was that, you know, it was only four years, five years after Fremantle. And, and all my heroes from Fremantle, well, so many of them from Fremantle were actually sailing on the boat. So Kevin Shoebridge, Tony Ray, Mike Quilter, um, you know, these guys had all had all been literally on posters on posters on my wall, and um, and now I'm getting to sail in the world with them. And so it was it was very special, and, and still is. What did you make of Daltz, Grant Dalton? What did you make of him? Yeah, I mean, Daltz is Daltz is a great mate, and and he, you know, the the things that Daltz and the opportunities Daltz has given me is 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 very special. And I mean, you know, Daltz is a, is he gets the people around him he wants, and he's you know very trusting, and and he gives you know. I mean, I was a watch captain for Daltz at twenty six years old. Now, I don't think in any of my racing I've since done, I would even consider having a 26-year-old watch captain, you know. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, he, he believed in me and he, he gave us, you know, the freedom and the, and the ability to develop the sales that we wanted to do. And, um, yeah, he, you know, Daltz is amazing. He knows what he's good at and he knows what he wants, what he's looking at and people. And you can see that over there i mean i was fortunate enough to <clears throat> to be allowed inside on on wednesday night after you know late into the evening and at team new zealand at team new zealand and you can you know they've they've done an amazing job of of just getting nice people haven't they you know they 
you know, I still laugh. I'd love to know whether where the no wankers sticker is on on the boat because it will be there. Every boat that Pete and Blair have ever raced, they have that that branding. So um, you know, but they they've achieved that with you know, and uh, that all comes from Dolts, you know. Um, love him or hate him, he's 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 always had very good teams with him that he has chosen to have around him. So that's that, and that's a skill which I, you know, I've. I learned from him and I took into all my campaigns and have taken into the business now. You know, the day you're <clears throat> the day you're not happy to hire better people than you are, <laughs> then you've lost the plot, you know. You're not you're going to you're going to cap how far things can go. It was your first time around the planet on boats. Looking back, we're pretty brutal <laughs> yeah i mean what memories do you have of your first time around the world my, my first time around the world was it was honestly it was like reading a book about the around the world race i mean you know we were in we were in new zealand and we and we you know we did a round new zealand tour and we were at the yacht clubs and you know I, that's what i'd read that the guys did the time before so then we were doing it and then you know we shipped the boat to europe and 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 then we were in the Hamble, like all Whitbread crews sort of seemed they had to be, you know. And then we're in the King and Queen, and then we're doing the Fastnet race, and then we, you know, started in the Solent, and we're off to Punta del Este, and and you know, it, it, Neptune nailed us going across the. So it was just so. It, honestly, it was like reading a book on on the the the, the Whitbread race and the Volvo and things and. And then in the Southern Ocean, we we broke the mizzen mast, and then we got calm coming into Fremantle and got past, and so just every every <clears throat> thing which I dreamt about, or good and bad, all happened. You know, it was just even looking back on it now, it was it was it was a very surreal time because you know it. Here I was with with the legends of, that I'd been idolising for so long, and in the latest, you know, Maxi, which was designed to sort of contort the rule, um, designed by Bruce Farr, you know, built at Martin Marine, and um, I'd been involved in the sail program. You know, it was it really didn't get any better, um, and I, you know, I got. I got to steer and I got to be one of the trimmers and 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 did a lot of driving, you know, in my first race, which again, you know, was was so was just an amazing experience. It's mad, isn't it? You're 22 years old. Yeah. yeah. What what about what about the big seas? I mean, a lot more people have done it now, of course. But what was it like heading off into the Southern Ocean? Yeah, well, we did. You know, we did that hideous leg from Ponta del Este to Fremantle. And, you know, and it was just brutal, you know, it was, you know, we were frozen wind gear and icicles hanging off the lifelines and, and it was all, again, all the things which you sort of read about. And things. So 8,000 nautical miles. Yeah, eight, and <laughs> in a lead mine, you know, in a, in a bloody slow boat, really. I mean, they were fast for IOR boats, but, you know, compared to now, it was pretty grisly. And Dolts had done some deal with our weather gear, and so we were wearing 
some wet weather gear made by a not a wet weather company. So we were pretty, it was pretty miserable. And we did this funny documentary, which is still around to haunt us all, which was called No Good Calling for Mum. And it was, we were sponsored by Television New Zealand. It was quite a clever um, sponsorship deal where um, basically all the sponsors of the team partnered with Television New Zealand. And um, anyway, we did this documentary and you were supposed to lock yourself in the back of the boat and, and turn on this little video camera on the wall. And, and it was supposed to be totally your diary, your personal diary. So all, you know, we're all in there going, oh, it's terrible. Here we are again. Mizzen mast falling down. It's freezing. I miss my home. My dog's sick, you know. And um, anyway, there, it, yeah, as I said, it's still around to haunt us. But um, yeah, in, interesting times. I mean, it was, yeah, we did some brutal legs at um, freezing cold and wet and miserable and, but, you know, they were, they, they, it set us all up, you know, for the rest of our lives. And, and I still sail with most of the people that were on that team. You know, there's a, there's a few that have retired or gone their separate ways. But, um, you know, so many of the guys, um, <clears throat> you know, I race with, you know, and Brad Jackson and Stu Bannatine and Sean Clarkson and, and you know, so many of the guys, um, you know, we we yeah we do, still do so much together. Let alone you know Shub and Glenn Sowry, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, yeah, amazing times. I've got to find that documentary. <laughs> yeah, no, a, no, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> my, I, I'm ima- having you know spent quite a while interviewing Kiwis. I'm imagining a Kiwi, <laughs> a book full of Kiwi guys trying to do a video diary. Yeah, imagine what that's like. Exactly. Called no good calling for mum, but um, anyway. No, it was an interesting time. Post 2000, of course, was probably the biggest turning point in professional sailing. Luckily, I learned when to speak up and, and when to shut up. Because a fair few times as a young rookie, you're like, oh, what are these old boys doing, you know? So you're 22 and you win the whip yeah. bread. I mean, yeah. What are your memories? I mean, that would have been, I guess, sailing into Southampton, of course. What was that like for a young Mike Sanderson? Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was unbelievable. And the question was, you know, how does it get any better than this? You're 22, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do the Whitbread race. I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to win the Whitbread race. I wanted to be part of a team to win the Whitbread race. And and here I was, you know, five years after leaving school or whatever, you know, I'd sort of ticked that one off. So it was, yeah, it was it was amazing. And and you know. Again, I remember Daltz coming, we're literally sailing up the Solent waterways and Daltz saying to us, you know, you know, soak it up, boys, you know, this is to a few of the younger guys, we're all together in one part of the boat. And he goes, you know, there's nothing more over, you know, than a, than a, than a Whitbread race. Tomorrow we're, we're doing something else, you know. And so enjoy today. And it was very wise words and it was very real because the next day you're suddenly like, shit now what you know um but yeah i mean it was again we had a great we had a great party and um but you know it was it was an unbelievable time and coming back to my schooling and things i think you know luckily i learned when to speak up and and when to shut up you know and that because a fair few times as a young 
rocky, you know, and you're like, oh, what are these old boys doing? You know, we should have bigger shoot up or a bigger jib up or why we've got a reef in and next minute, boom, you know, the black cloud. And you go, ah, <laughs> okay, I'm glad I didn't say anything. So, you know, it was an amazing life lesson and sailing lesson. And, you know, it was a, it was a very cool time. How did being on that crew on, on the winning boat change your life? I think it, you know, it, as I said before, I, you, you know, so many of those relationships which came from that first, you, you know, um, that, you know, that first lap have gone on to be such a big part of my life, you know. And, um, you, you know, obviously I went on to do another lap with Grant with Merritt Cup and and that certainly changed things for me because you know I was a young watch captain on Merritt Cup um and you know I'm still you know I'm still very good friends with them all and um yeah I still um it 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 just it because the campaign was a success then things get left on a positive note and that sort of belief is that you 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 know you work well together as a team and and yeah it was just a it you know for my first professional campaign it, there's no doubt it being a winning being lucky enough to be part of a winning one because let's be honest I probably didn't contribute that much but to be lucky enough to be part of a winning one is a really big deal you know and it, especially if you're privileged enough to do it, and I'm, I'm sure there's others, you know, there's other leaders, if you like, that are capable to do it, but to get to do it in a Dalton camp, you know, where, let's be honest, the work ethos is, is set, <laughs> you know, by him, and and um, that, that just sets you up for life, you know, that that the benchmark is, is set. You know, um, Blake obviously <coughs> set a new... Um, benchmark with the Steinlager campaign of what it was going to take to dominate the Whitbread race and um, you know I think we moved that benchmark again with New Zealand Endeavour and you know I think Ilbrook did it again when they won the race and I'd like to think you know we did it again with ABN AMRO so you know and and it's gone on since then don't get me wrong um, but yeah, I think you know, for me, on my first chance to get to do it in a Dalton-led campaign, um, and w- w- set me on the right foot. There's no doubt about it. As you said, '97, Dalts wanted you back. Uh, talk to me about the the Merit Cup Whitbread campaign. Yeah, the the Merit Cup Whitbread campaign was a wasn't you know was an interesting one because obviously we'd we'd you know we'd come out of. We come out of New Zealand Endeavour, and to be fair with Merit Cup, we probably, I'm sure, Dolts would admit this. We 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 didn't lead the the um the we didn't find what the next um, level of professionalism in Whitbread or Volvo racing was going to do. So we probably rested too much on our '93-'94 culture, you know as opposed to going, okay, that level of intensity did at that time, what what's next? And um 
And so we were a bit slower hitting the ground than we should have been. You know, we had a fantastic crew, um, but we didn't, um, you know, the boat wasn't as good as it should have been. And we didn't, we, we didn't push, we didn't push the, the boat out hard enough with regards to um, ultimate performance. You know, we, we, we didn't, the, the boat was a little bit of an average build and it was a little bit of a conservative design and it was a little, you know, everything was not, you know, one thing which I see now, which they do so well in Team New Zealand, and I still see other teams making the same mistake as they, as, you know, Team New Zealand put the hardest foils on to, that they can sail with and then they go and learn how to use them. Whereas other teams go, oh, that we're not going to be able to do that. So we have to, we have to. This is what we have to use. Team New Zealand have just never operated like that in the last, at least the last two cup cycles, and I guess it's longer than that if you think of their foiling boat in in San Francisco. And it's amazing that it's taken so long, and and yet you still see other teams compromising what they probably know was faster, but but accepted that, you, you know, you were going to be vulnerable here or it was going to be too hard to operate or whatever. And, and we were probably too like that with Merit Cup. We, we were probably too conservative and, 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 yeah, and again, rested on. But don't get me wrong, we, we, we sailed the boat very hard and we had, fanta- we had a, in my opinion, you know, we had the best, we had a very, um, we had a lot of us that could steer the boat and um, so we learned a lot and we learned quickly and we sailed well enough to get back to second, which was remarkable, to be honest. <laughs> you know, So we definitely got the most out of what was probably a bit of a slow start. All right. By 2000, you were part of the Cup with Team New Zealand. I mean, how did that come about and, and what was your role, Mike? Yeah, so very, I, I, you know, I... I, I I sort of dodged that one off my my CV because I really just came in for the last couple of months to give them a to give them a hand. Um, when they selected, when they went into their final lineup for the for the cup cycle, um, Dean Barker literally rang me up. Um, I'd been I'd been busy obviously with Merit Cup and and um, hadn't really been involved in the cup cycle. I'd actually done some coaching for America True, and I was quite involved. Um, and that stage, we'd we'd done a Marisha transatlantic record attempt, and we were we were sailing that boat more. And um, yeah, because I had actually just started skippering the Marisha boats when they started racing. And um, so yes, I I literally got the privilege, and I and I very much say it as a privilege to go and join Team New Zealand for the last few months when they went into their in-house racing um, part of the campaign for the end. And that was, you know, that was amazing. It was, um, you know, I because I'd been sort of involved with the challenges. I, I never forget. Russell came up to me on the dock afterwards and and said, oh, "How do you think, you know, how do how do you think we're going?" And I just had to answer. I said, "You know, you guys are in a whole nother league. This is not, and I'm not just telling you that. This is you guys are. This is going to be an absolute whitewash, which which it was, you know." And for me, 2000 is still one of the most dominant Team New Zealand performances of 
you know, Russell was and Brad and, you know, Warwick and Simon and, you know, all the guys were very much at the top of their match racing game. You know, they were dominating the tour and, and um, <clears throat> yeah, it was, yeah, it was just a very cool thing to be a part of. And they, you know, they'd obviously developed with Laurie Davidson in, in 57 and, and NZL 60s, some very cool boats. And um, yeah, it was, it was, it, as soon as we, as soon, you know, within a few days of sailing with them, I, I you know, I knew that it was going to be a, a bit of a slam dunk them defending that cup because it was, it really was quite a, a powerhouse. How big was that? I mean, to the to the nation here in New Zealand, it's hard to think of a time that a sailing event has ever meant so much to a country. Yeah, well, I th- I did think that, and 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 I didn't think that was beatable. But I I do wonder whether last week didn't didn't kazump that, you know, um, it, you know, I mean, I think um, obviously, you know, um, two thousand was amazing, and it was a it was an unbelievable spectacle. But I, you know, I think this. You, you know, the guys were so dominant in two thousand. You know, a five zip. When you know the the, the Kiwi likes to be a, the battler a little bit, you know, and so there's something about how amazing Luna Rossa were as a challenger, and and how you know from a from a story of of watching those Team New Zealand guys having to grow through that series, because I you know I think there's and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think. If time had gone on further, that was just going to get more and more dominant. You know, they were, you know, they 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 were they, they didn't make the same mistake twice all all week, and they were just learning to race that boat and learning how to make it go faster and learning on where their wind shadows were and things. So, I thought two thousand was, you know, in our time to date was was going to be hard to beat, but I I honestly think last week might have done it. Two thousand was massive here and. Mm. And then there was the big breakup that followed. Yeah. I mean, how did you learn about what was going on with Russell and with Alinghi and, and how did all that affect what was going on? Well, I, I was already sailing with Larry Allison on, on Sayonara in those days. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, um, in that 98, 99 and then 2000 period, it was it was pretty interesting times. And I was actually, it was Tony Ray, so we can throw him under the bus, long-standing, um, you know, long-standing Team New Zealand, you know, cornerstone of Trey. We were with Larry, I'm pretty sure it was in Sardinia, where he, he said to me, well, you know, you understand that, you, you know, we, you could do the America's Cup and we could get a very good crew. And Now, Trey ended up, as it turned out, staying with Team New Zealand and, the, and most of the rest of the Sayonara guys went to oracle um but yeah i mean it was post 2000 of course was probably the you know was probably the biggest turning point in professional sailing that that we've seen since the day of people starting to be paid at all because you know there it went from something that you could possibly live on to to you know, literally overnight, salaries tripled, quadrupled, whatever you like, um, and and suddenly, 
you know, every man and his dog was putting up their hand saying they're a professional sailor. Um, so the 2000 and the negotiations for crew for the 2003 America's Cup was, uh, you know, a really interesting time. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it, it was a great time to be a professional sailor. It was a tough time to put a cup team together. We talked about your Whitbread experiences in part one, Mike. But you also, as you said, started sailing on Sayonara with Larry Ellison. Uh, am I right? You started sailing with them just after the 1998 Hobart. Yes. Yeah. So I didn't, I'd actually, Richard Meacham and I, well, I was, I was contacted about doing that 98 Hobart and, and, um, and because I'd actually done some sailing with them when they first put the boat in the water here in 95. And then all the team New Zealand Hevs came on back on after the cup in, in San Diego. And so I didn't make the cut. And then I was going to do the 98 Hobart with him, but, but Dick and I were doing the 12 foot skiff into Dominions in Auckland Harbour. So I, we, I gracefully declined that. And, um, uh, and then, yeah, did the, did the next year with them. Um, so, which, which was amazing. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a it was a fantastic time to get to know Larry. I was doing the main sheet for him, so still to this day, I, I've sort of kept in touch. Um, just actually doing a super yacht project with him at the moment, and um, yeah, it's it. I was very lucky, you know, being that close to Larry. He was I was one of the names that he knew because that wasn't ever his strength on any of his teams. Um, and so yeah, it was it was a it was an interesting time. So. Yes, so Sayonara then led on to the 2003. I joined them for the 2003 Cup. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was an obvious um, place for me to go. Not so much um, from a Team New Zealand standpoint, but uh, at that stage I was very active in North Sales. And Larry was obviously a big client of mine um, from a sail making standpoint. And so the ultimate obviously was to turn that into an America's Cup team. Um, so, yeah, that was that that went well. Yeah, there's a lot of sales in an America's Cup. There's a lot. And there was a, a lot back then. Um, if only we had that many now. Yeah, it'd be it'd be good for the sail makers. <laughs> What was it like, say, like with Larry Ellis? I mean, how passionate was he about the sport? Yeah, I mean, he's unbelievable. You know, he, he you know, we we had so, so many amazing times sailing with Larry. You know, it, um, you know, there's so many cool stories. You know, you we were sitting on the rail, going up to the Chicago Mac race, and and um you know the gentleman I'm sitting next to and he said oh what do you do Mike and I said oh I'm a sailmaker I work for North Sales and he I, I said oh what do you do and he said oh well I I own a you know I own a chain of hardware stores I said oh yeah that's cool because you might have heard of it it's called the Home Depot I'm like right yep no rightio so every time we had a guest or a someone that was you know someone unbelievably wealthy or famous or so you know it was it was always interesting to see who was going to turn up with Larry you know from a guest standpoint and and things so now very cool and obviously the planes and the boats and the um you know I remember we we won a race in 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 Sardinia in the maxi worlds and there was whatever we sailed with 22 people or something and he said 
you know, right, guys, what do you want for dinner? Like, and of course, American boat. And one of the guys shouts out, can we have, you know, buffalo wings and ribs? And here we are in Italy, <laughs> probably 4.30 in the evening. And the poor chef on his boat for 40 people has to organize buffalo wings and, and ribs. And sure enough, we turn up two hours later and it's, you know, so, I mean, Larry was an amazing character and, and it is an amazing character. And um, yeah, it'd be, yeah, we, we need to get him back racing yachts. That's for sure. It, um, I don't know what, if he's got any desire to get back in the America's Cup, but um, we need to get him back racing because he, he loves it. You know, he as a sailor, we saw him sail as RC44. We saw him, you know, in, the, in, in my day, he would steer the cup boat quite a bit. Um, and, you know, he's a good sailor. And, um, yeah, we need to get him back racing. What was that cup campaign like? Tell us a little bit about it. It was a bit of a shambles, to be honest. You know, um, 03 was, it, it was, you know, it was a bit messy. Um, you know, we had... Uh, Deco in charge and then Deco out and then Deco back and you know so it was it yeah it was a bit of a shambles we um yeah it y you know it's it it's always hard you know when you've got such a strong personality of Larry and uh in 03 which was very different to the later cups um you know, the Oracle, even though I wasn't involved in any of the later Oracle ones, it was it was very clear that, well, Chris was very much in charge in 07 and then Russell, you know, um, after that. So whereas in 03, um, Bill Erklins, who, 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 you know, did an amazing job um, with 03, um, he was still stuck with the fact that a few other people had access to Larry and Larry had access to them. And so as much as Bill could, you know, would, would manage it and do a great job, um, there was sort of all these things going on around him, unfortunately. And so it, it, 03 was tough. It was tough on everyone. We, we, we managed to make the Louis Vuitton finals, but, um, you know, we were never going to beat Lingy, to be honest. Um, and we were sort of bouncing off the walls a little bit and we went from having the smallest sale area to the biggest from the deepest draft to the shallow you know we were just all over the place um but you know it, it there's no doubt it set a strong platform for 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 the oracle campaigns going forward and you know many of <clears throat> many of the same people were still there when they went on to to win it and defend it and so you know it's I'm sure as the other cup teams, us, you know, obviously, you know, with Ineos and with American Magic, you know, I'm sure they've learned some amazing lessons on how they would do it differently next time. And, and at Oracle, we had to learn those same lessons. Um, yeah, everyone seems to have to. Um, Alinghi's probably the, the, the case where they had enough of a core with enough of a say where they were able to do it without needing to learn the lessons, you know. They didn't put Larry off anyway. He came, no. He came back for a lot more. So yeah, and, that he's, bad. and he's back now, obviously, with Sal GP, yeah. which is, you know, you know, so he's there's no doubting the man's passion for sport. And, you know, I'm, I like lots of people, I think, you know, we're pretty, the Cup's been amazing and it's been very cool. But, you know, Sal GP, to see those guys in one design equipment, 
is going to be cool and you know throw slingsby and outerage into the mix as well um yeah it's, and you know it's going to be very cool yeah that's for sure and um, mike you were also involved i mean you mentioned earlier the mary shah project weren't you i mean a massive 40 something meter <laughs> yeah canting keel <laughs> record breaker of the late 90s you know incredible i mean like the boat of the moment what was your involvement there yeah so Again, I was I was very young when I got asked. Um, well, for the responsibility, I was young. And I to to um, basically race skipper, as we called it, um, Marisha three when we did the ninety nine um, Sydney Hobart with the boat. Um, so obviously, it was the year after the tragedy, and it was the America's cut. It was the Hobart leading up to the boats, all the super yachts supposedly coming here for the America's Cup in 2000. And so, yeah, that was my first time really sort of um, in charge of the boat from a from a racing standpoint. Um, and that's gone on forever since then. And that was on the um, 147-foot Briand catch, which would actually broken the transatlantic record in, in 97. Um, and, but after that, um, after the 2003 cup, we basically, uh, worked with Robert Muller, the owner and, and Jeff Tativo, who project managed it. And, and we came up with Marisha four, um, which as you say, was this 140 foot plus, um, carbon schooner, which was just, was really designed to break the transatlantic record. And everything after that was just going to be a bonus, really. Um, and we did that, and, and we hit, you know, the boat came out on time, boat came out on weight, on budget. We sailed across the Atlantic. We went on standby. Um, we were within a, a week of going on standby of when we first presented the, the feasibility study to, to the Miller family. We were within a week to the day of going on standby that we said you know two years earlier and um yeah we had an amazing run across the atlantic and and smashed the record which which then stood whatever it was for 15 years or and something until comanche broke it two or three years ago so yeah very cool you know very cool project um i was involved as part of the design team and then um and then we we four or five of us were all there for the final stages of the build and then all the commissioning and sea trialing and then i, I race skip it again the, the boat for them for the whole time it was it was in in marisha colors um so yeah very cool time of our life um we had um yeah emma and i had just got together and so we had marisha in the shed and then her little pindar open 60 beside it in Cherbourg and we lived in a in a you know with a with our whole Marisha family we lived in this um lovely old country estate in in Foucauville in France and um yeah a fun time um and that was sort of my intro into the Amoka and the French world as well um and yeah, but yeah, really cool memories. And and we we roared around the place with Marishar and uh, broke the obviously the Atlantic record, and then brought the boat to the Pacific and broke the Pacific Cup record. And that was, was very cool. 
What do you remember of that Atlantic crossing? I mean, you don't, you just break it. You yeah, smashed it. Yeah, we did. And I mean, the boat just, it was a, a little bit, I guess, like, you know, how we were just talking about the, 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 my first Whitbread race. It, it, the movie just played out how, you, you, I mean, you know what it's like when you sometimes you have those regattas or events where things just, happen to to work you know and sometimes you have them when they just don't and sometimes you have them when they do and and that whole atlantic crossing the the movie just went as per the script you know we got a great system to go yeah we had you know we had tack through a little ridge first but but then we were off and and we you know we just had day after day of this you know just windy enough for us to really be able to light the thing up and um and you know flat water so that you know where the waves weren't slowing us down and 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 we sailed a very um we were lucky enough to sail a very efficient route from a mileage standpoint so yeah it was it 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 all went beautifully to plan the boat the boat was a dream um you know in reality now you could you know there are lots of boats that could could break that time but as you know as we've seen it's it's very hard to beat a big boat across an ocean and it, it takes something special like Comanche to do it, you know. Um, but, you know, now Comanche's vulnerable to something that's going to foil in, in reality. Um, you know, that's going to be what it's going to take next. Um, and, yeah, so stand by for that because that'll, be that'll be a big chunk that comes off it. If I think of the conditions, you know, which we got with Marishar, I mean, some someone would have foiled three quarters of the way across the Atlantic, and that's an amazing thing to envisage, you know. So it's coming. It is. It's a mad time in the sport, isn't it? It's yes. pretty exciting. I hope you're all enjoying Mike Sanderson. I could listen to him all day. He's a man who talks with incredible enthusiasm. We're going to leave Mike there reminiscing on the remarkable Marishah 4 that 2003 transatlantic monohull record that was six days, 17 hours and 15 minutes and stood for 13 years. As a side note, two years later, Marishah 4 broke the transatlantic regatta conditions record, which has stood for 100 years. For all that time held by the mighty Charlie Barr, one of the leading lights of America's Cup sailing in the early 1900s. What a history our sport has. If you've enjoyed the pod and would like to support it, please do head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. We work hard to bring you a real quality ad-free listen and it's lovely to have your support. So many, many thanks for that. And thanks too to the talented Tim at Vertigo Films for producing the pods. It's been a busy month. We're both about to head to Tokyo for the games. So it's been a hectic time at Podcast HQ. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. They're gaining on the line on there. Oh. We're looking at 10-5, 42. Five.
Castle One standing by. Out.